Good afternoon, everyone. In previous sermons, we've been discussing the history of apostasy. And there's a lot to this subject because it goes, as we've mentioned, it pretty much stretches throughout all of mankind's history. So we're just hitting the highlights, so to speak, of it. But there are... It's not only the historical interest that's involved in this, but also important lessons we can learn from these examples. And so I think it's worthwhile that we go through this subject. In today's sermon, I want to pick up where we left off with the apostasy among the Jews at the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. That was in the second century B.C. And... In previous sermons, we discussed the fact that one of the identifying marks of a true Christian is faith. The word for faith in the Greek of the New Testament is pistis, which means belief or faith. But what kind of faith is necessary to identify one as a true Christian? It's not just any belief or any faith, but it is a particular faith, a particular set of beliefs that is the mark of a true Christian. We find in many places in the Bible that genuine faith implies obedience to God's commandments. For example, in Revelation 12, or excuse me, Revelation 14, verse 12, Revelation 14, verse 12, it says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So, Here we see the saints described as those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So it is the faith of of Jesus, the faith of God, involves keeping his commandments. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. John 8 and verse 31, if you abide in my word, you are my, my disciples indeed. True faith is the faith that is in accord with God's word. It is the faith that is defined by the teachings of God's word. What does God's word say then about blending idolatrous heathen beliefs, teachings and practices with God's word? And God's word is consists of the scriptures of the Old Testament, which consisted of three parts, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And Jesus confirmed this to his disciples when he said, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. That's in John 21, beginning with verse 44. These are the words which I spoke to you, that all things might be fulfilled which are written in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. These are the three divisions, you might say, of the scriptures of the Old Testament. And the Psalms here is put for the writings as Psalms was the largest portion of that part of Scripture and representative 
of the whole of that part of the three divisions of the Old Testament. In addition, the writings of the apostles or those who represented them became scripture during the New Testament era. We read in 2 Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter 3 and verse 14, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. So notice here that Paul's epistles were recognized as scripture. And the other books of the New Testament were recognized by the church in its infancy as scripture as well. And perhaps I'll speak on this subject in, in more detail in another sermon. But the scriptures, the word of God consists of the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. As they have been preserved and passed down to us today. And the Word of God, the Scriptures, condemns the blending of God's worship with the worship of false gods. In Deuteronomy 12, verse 28, Deuteronomy 12, verse 28, we read, Observe and obey all these words which I command you, that it may go well with you and with your children after you forever, when you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. When the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations, which you go to dispossess, and you displace them and dwell in their land. Take heed to yourself that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed from before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? I also will do likewise." You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abomination to the Lord which he hates, they have done to their gods, for they burn even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. So notice the people of Israel were warned against adopting the customs the worship practices of the heathen nations around them. And yet far more often than not, Israel in ancient times, as well as Judah, chose to disregard God's injunctions against idolatry and against it, blending of idolatrous customs and doctrines. And instead, they adopted these into their worship. Often they blended the name of God and some biblical practices with heathenism. An early example is the making of an idol and worshiping it using the name of Yahweh while Moses was communing with God on Mount Sinai. As we read in Exodus 32, Exodus 32 and verse 1. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron 
and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord, or in the Hebrew, a feast to Yahweh. So they were calling this idol that they had made by the name of God, Yahweh, and claiming that it was this dumb idol that had brought them out of Egypt. So they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go get down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way, which I commanded them. So this was an apostasy. And they have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. This is the kind of thing that Israel continued to do over and over again as well as Judah for much of their history and something that God condemns. Teachings and practices contrary to the word of God are to be rejected. We read in Isaiah 8 and verse 20, Isaiah 8 and verse 20, to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. If they do not speak according to this word, the word of Scripture, the word of the true servants of God. After the Jews, under the leadership of the Maccabees, regained control of Jerusalem and the temple in 164 B.C., as we described in the previous sermon, and restored freedom of worship for the Jews who were wanted to be faithful to God, there continued a series of wars involving the Jews and the Seleucid and other kingdoms. Finally, in 142 B.C., the Greeks signed a peace treaty with the Jewish leader Simon, the last of the five sons of the priest Mattathias, the last one to, to be alive at that time. He was the last of the five of the so-called Maccabees. Uh, of that uh, <clears throat> of that generation. And for a few years, there was relative peace. But soon, there were more wars, and uh, along with that, internecine struggles within the family of the Maccabees. Simon himself was murdered by his son-in-law, named Ptolemy in 135 
B.C. And eventually the independent rule of the Maccabees or the Hasmonean dynasty as it's called came to an end when the Roman general Pompey captured Jerusalem in 63 B.C. and subjected Judah to Roman rule. The war against the Greek Seleucid Empire, as you might remember, had originated with the aim of maintaining the integrity of the Jewish religion based on the precepts of the Old Testament against the attempts of the Greeks to Hellenize the Jews. The word Hellenize is actually a word that means, uh, that comes from the, the uh, Greek word for Greek. <clears throat> and uh, to Hellenize, meant to impose upon them Greek language, practices, and culture, including the worship of pagan gods. However, with the victory of the Jewish armies leading to independence from the Seleucid rule came political intrigue and compromise with the very elements that had threatened the Jews in the first place. And so we read in an article entitled The Revolt of the Maccabees, the following statement. This is from an article entitled The Revolt of the Maccabees on a website called simpletoremember.com, which is a Jewish website. And it states here, quote, the Hasmonean dynasty, which lasts for 103 years, and this 103 years is calculated as 167 B.C. with the beginning of the Maccabean War against Antiochus Epiphanes to 63 B.C. when Pompey co uh, conquered uh, Jerusalem. So it says the Hasmonean dynasty, which lasts for 103 years and which is marked by great territorial expansion, but also by a terrible moral and religious decline. They should not have been kings in the first place, and then they became corrupted by their own power, end quote. So note this period after their conquest, the dynasty was marked by a terrible moral and religious decline, and the Maccabean rulers became corrupted by their own power. Most of the Maccabean rulers or as they're also called Hasmonean rulers, during the reign of their dynasty were Hellenized, the very thing that they had initially begun the war to avoid. Most of them were Hellenized, and both political and religious leaders during that period of time became corrupt and apostatized in various ways. The... Not, not long after uh, the uh, victory of the Maccabees, they claimed the high priesthood for themselves, and Hasmonean high priests occupied the office in Jerusalem from 152 B.C., after a period of seven years during which there was no high priest in Jerusalem, until 37 B.C. Shortly after 37 B.C., 
when Herod and the Roman governor of Syria conquered Jerusalem, Herod exterminated the Hasmonean line and killed the last of those remaining alive of that uh, line of descent. Herod the Great was appointed king of Judea by the Romans in 37 B.C. And from then on, actually, he, that's when he began his rule. He was actually appointed in 40 B.C., but he didn't actually uh, manage to uh, take over the government until 37 B.C., from then on until the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, the office of high priest was completely subject to the whims of political authorities such as Herod and his successors who appointed and deposed them at will. So that there were 28 high priests during this period from 37 BC to 70 AD, a little over 100 years, there were 28 high priests, which would be an average of less than four years for each one. Most of these high priests were from four politically powerful and wealthy priestly families that had no legitimate claim to the high priesthood, and the post was often won by bribery and treachery. Joachim Jeremias, who was, who, who was a Jewish scholar, provides a very good summary of the history of the high priesthood from the Maccabean era to the destruction of the temple in his book entitled Jerusalem in the Time of Jesus. And we find that in reading about the priests during this era, era that uh, they were ruthless and corrupt. These families filled all the important temple offices with their close relatives. These office holders are referred to as the chief priests or sometimes rulers in the New Testament. And so where you read in the context about the rulers among the Jews and the chief priests, generally these are the people who are being referred to, Besides wielding considerable political power, the high priestly families controlled the temple finances and at times violently and illegally took from the ordinary priests their share of tributes and offerings. So they were corrupt. They were thieves. They were using the priesthood to... Uh, enrich themselves. You remember Jesus casting out the money changers. That was one of the ways in which they were using the temple to enrich themselves. And so the high priestly families amassed great wealth while ordinary priests were commonly impoverished and were often forced to work at common trades to support themselves and their families. Despite the rapacity and Corruption of the chief priests at the time of Jesus, however, the primary reason that the ordinary priests were impoverished is because most of the Jews were not paying tithes. They, they were paying uh, 
money in the temple when they went to bring their sacrifices. They were bringing uh, animal hides and so forth, which were sold for profit by the priests. And they were bringing offerings and uh, also paying to change their money in the temple and so forth. But they were not paying tithes to the, the that would uh, rightfully have gone to the ordinary priests. The uh, Encyclopedia Britannica remarks, the, in quoting here, it says, the Ameha the Aretz, which is a term that means the people of the land or the ordinary Israelites. And uh, these, these, these people uh, were, uh, this was the term that the uh, Pharisees used for them, the Ameha Aretz, the people of the land. And they were held in contempt by the Pharisees as not knowing the law. And the Pharisees generally regarded them, the ordinary Israelites, as cursed. But goes on to say in the Encyclopedia Britannica that they did not give the prescribed tithes, did not observe the laws of purity, and were neglectful of the laws of prayer. End quote. So this... This was the state of affairs at roughly at the time of Jesus and the New Testament era. And uh, Jeremiah also comments on the general ne neglect of the tithe laws as well. And he cites uh, the, the Jewish writer Philo who stated that, quote, the priests would have had plenty if everyone had paid his full dues, end quote. During the Maccabean period, two main religious and political parties emerged which competed with each other for influence until near the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And these are known as the Pharisees and the Sadducees. During the early Christian era, the Sadducees were politically dominant. Nevertheless, according to Josephus, in religious matters, it was the Pharisees who were more influential due to their greater popularity with the people. The Sadducees consisted of the high priestly families, as we, the ones we've already described, along with their allies and the lay aristocracy. aristocracy. In other words, they were the, the rulers, generally speaking. They were the most wealthy generally among the people of the, of the Jews. And they had a great deal of political control and influence. The Sadducees dominated the Sanhedrin for most of the New Testament era. The Sanhedrin was the supreme administrative and judicial body among the Jews at the time. They also controlled the temple. That is, the Sadducees we're speaking of. They controlled the temple during most of the time of their existence. And it states in the Encyclopedia Judaica, quote, the Sadducean hierarchy had its stronghold in the temple and it was only during the last two decades of the temple's existence that the Pharisees finally gained control, end quote. 
In some respects, the Sadducees were more conservative than the Pharisees. Particularly, this was true with regard to the formal practices regarding the temple service. The Sadducees held strictly to the literal interpretation of the Torah, as we read in Jerusalem in the time of Jesus. They held strictly to the literal interpretation of the Torah, in particular to the precepts on the cultists and the priesthood, end quote. And we read in the Encyclopedia of Religion and Ethics, quote, in these matters, quote, generally the Sadducean rule undoubtedly conformed to ancient practice, end quote. So the, as far as the procedures for the temple services is concerned, the Sadducees were more conservative and actually more faithful to Scripture than were the Pharisees. Both Pharisees and Sadducees were affected by Hellenization, however, and they were affected in different ways. The Sadducees were more open to cooperating with the Gentile authorities, and we read in the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia in its article on the Sadducees, quote, with the Greek domination, the power of the high priests at home was increased but they became still more subservient to their heathen masters and were the leaders in the Hellenizing movement. So the Sadducees tended to accept Hellenization more readily. And contrary to the teaching of Scripture, they rejected the idea of the resurrection and life after death. As we read in the New Testament and elsewhere, you can read that in Acts 23 and verse 8. On the other hand, the Pharisees developed traditions that were intended to set them apart not only from Gentiles, but even from other Jews who did not accept their traditions, whom they regarded as less righteous. And by the way, the, even the word Pharisee uh, implies one who is separated. But <clears throat> they separated themselves through their traditions, and not only from Gentiles, but from other Jews who did not accept their traditions, whom they regarded as less righteous. But even as they were doing so, in uh, ostensibly to avoid Hellenization and being influenced by Gentile practices. At the same time they were doing this, they adopted ideas from pagan sources, such as the immortality of the soul and ideas about hell and heaven that are not biblical. So while they were, uh, they were putting distance between themselves and the Gentiles in some respects, at the same time they were absorbing some of their philosophical and religious ideas. One thing in their favor, however, is that they execrated overt idolatry 
And it wasn't until several centuries after Christ that idolatrous images began to appear in the architecture of Jewish synagogues. So they did not use idol images explicitly and they did not uh, explicitly worship pagan gods or foreign gods. They, along with the priesthood, also maintained the calendar and they did observe the Sabbath and the holy days that God had prescribed, although they did so imperfectly, they did do these things uh, more or less faithfully. But they had other problems. Some Jews, particularly the forerunners of the Pharisees called Hasidim, adopted pagan ideas regarding heaven and hell from the Persians. And these ideas were passed on to the Pharisees. And it was from the Greeks that the Pharisees borrowed the idea of the immortality of the soul. We read from a book titled Origin of Synagogue and Church written by Kaufman Kohler, who was a reformed Jewish rabbi, or reformed Jewish rabbi, I should say. Uh, the name of the book is Origin of Synagogue and Church. It's a history of the synagogue and the church. And uh, he states, quote, the doctrine of the immortality of the soul is widely different from the belief in the resurrection and was adopted only by the Hellenistic Jews who followed Plato's philosophy, end quote. So notice this Jewish rabbi admits that the idea of the immortality of the soul, which was adopted by the Pharisees, was a Hellenistic idea that they borrowed from Plato. And it's far different from the simple belief in the resurrection that's taught in the scripture. The Pharisees came to believe that at the time of judgment, the resurrected body would be reunited with the soul. The soul they believed the soul was immortal, that it survived the death of the body, and that at the time of judgment, the resurrected body would be reunited with the soul. In adding their traditions to the law, the Pharisees were doing something that was forbidden, something that was contrary to what God had commanded. In Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 4 and verse 1, God had told the people of Israel, Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and judgments which I teach you to observe that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take away from it. 
that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. So here, as well as other places, we already read another scripture that said essentially the same thing. God had told them that they were not to add to his words. They were not to make up a bunch of additional rules and laws and add them to his laws. But that's exactly what the Pharisees did. The Pharisaic tradition by the time of Jesus not only included some doctrines borrowed from paganism, but had developed, or you might say degenerated, into an array of petty rules having to do with the minutiae of the law, focusing on physical works primarily, which had little to do with the spirit of the law, little to do with the intent of the law, in fact, which was often contrary to the law and in violation of it. And frankly, many of their rules were designed to get around their obligations to observe the laws of God. But at the same time, there were many uh, obligations which they placed on people which were extremely burdensome. Jesus said that in adding the weight of their tradition to the law of God, they bound, quote, heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay on them on men's shoulders. This is from Matthew 23 and verse 3. Matthew 23 and verse 3. Moreover, they placed the authority of their traditions above that of Scripture itself, thus blaspheming the word of God. As uh, Joachim Jeremiah point, points out in his uh, book that I referred to earlier, he points out that they taught that their oral tradition was above the Torah, that is, above the written scriptures, and that the esoteric writings containing scribal teachings were regarded as inspired and surpassing the canonical books in value and sanctity. Alfred Adersheim, another Jew who later converted to Christianity, but also wrote uh, books concerning uh, the teachings and practices of the Jews. But he points out that the traditional law was of, quote, even greater obligation than Scripture itself. This is from the life and times of Jesus the Messiah. And these statements are made in various Jew Jewish writings, such as the Talmud and so forth. Jesus warned against both the doctrines of the Sadducees and the doctrines of the Pharisees. In Matthew 16, verse 6, Matthew 16, verse 6, Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have taken no bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, O you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves? Because you have brought no bread. He went on to explain, verse 11, quote, How is it you do not understand that I did not speak of you concerning bread, 
but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So Jesus warned that his disciples were to beware of the doctrine, both of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees, because those doctrines were false. They were misleading. Jesus said of the Pharisaic traditions in Mark chapter 7, beginning with verse 1, we read, this is from Mark 7 and verse 1, Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why, are your, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men. The washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. He said to them all too well, you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. So this was the fundamental error of the Pharisees. They actually had put themselves in God's place. They made themselves their own lawgivers in place of God, who is the true lawgiver. They had displaced his laws, his commandments with their traditions. And so they were worshiping God in vain. They were honoring God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. That's what Jesus said. Both the Pharisees and the Sadducees had turned away from the truth and, and had become apostates from the truth. Hence, they did not recognize the Messiah when he appeared among them. And in fact, they persecuted him and eventually instigated his murder with the help of the Roman authorities. And as far as the people in general were concerned, the people of the Jews, they were not obedient to God either as evidenced in part by their refusal to tithe, but also in other ways. And here's what Jesus said of them. And this, I believe, is from Matthew 5. I didn't mark down the chapter, but 
Anyway, Jesus said, uh, beginning with verse 13, Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, neither do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, By hearing you will hear and will in no way understand, seeing you will see and, in, and will in no way perceive. For this people's heart has grown callous, and their ears are dull of hearing, and they have closed their eyes, or else perhaps they might perceive with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and should turn again, and I would heal them. Notice he said that they would hear but not understand and that their, their uh, hearts had grown callous, their ears were dull of hearing, they had closed their eyes, else perhaps they might perceive with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and should turn again or repent, and I would hear them, heal them. This is from the New Heart English Bible translation of this particular, these, this particular passage. So the, the people of Judah who had the word of God, and, and, and I might say that uh, most people at that time among the Jews had copies of the scriptures. The uh, scriptures had been translated a couple of hundred years prior to that era into the Greek language, and uh, Greek was the universal language of that time. Most of the Jews could speak Greek and underst understood it, although uh, in Palestine, most of them spoke Aramaic as their first language. But <clears throat> uh, Greek copies of the, of the Bible were quite uh, readily available at that time, and most of the people among the Jews in Palestine and elsewhere had their own copies of the scriptures. Not only that, of course, they were instructed uh, weekly in the synagogues, those who attended the synagogues, which many of them did. But even though they had the scriptures, they did not understand much of what was, what was in the scriptures because understanding comes with obedience as we read in psalm 111 verse 10 psalm 111 and verse 10 a good understanding have all those who do his commandments so without striving to obey the commandments properly then one has difficulty having real spiritual understanding and so the people of Judah in general had little understanding because most of them were not really obeying God faithfully. And so they were in a state of apostasy. Many of their practices were false practices. At the same time, however, it is encouraging that they're 
was or were, if you want to put it in the, that, those terms, a faithful remnant among the Jews at the time of Jesus. There were many Jews who were not faithfully obeying God, but there were others who were quite faithful. Among them were Joseph and Mary, who became the legal parents of Jesus. There were also Zacharias and Elizabeth, who was a cousin or a close relative of Mary. We read in Luke 1 and verse 5, Luke 1 and verse 5, there was in the days of Herod, the king of Judah, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abiah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. So that's quite a testimony to this husband and wife. They were both righteous before God, walk, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. And these became the parents of John the Baptist. There were also a man named Simeon and Anna the prophetess. <clears throat> we read about in Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, beginning with verse 22. Now, when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were uh, completed, this is speaking of Mary, the mother of Jesus, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Spirit of God was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles in the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and Mary, his mother, marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. So here was a man whom we read had the Holy Spirit and through the Holy Spirit was revealed to him the, the identity of the Messiah. When he saw Jesus, he recognized him. 
as the promised Messiah. Goes on to say in verse 36, Now there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Israel. These are a few of a number of others in Judah who were faithful during the time of Christ in spite of the widespread apostasy that prevailed. After Jesus' death and resurrection, also thousands of Jews were converted to Christianity, became disciples of Jesus Christ, including quite a number of Pharisees. But even though thousands were converted and repented of their sins, most of the Jews of that age were not converted. And some of their leaders not only persecuted and sought the murder of Jesus Christ, but also later persecuted Christians. Jesus preached the gospel to the Jews and he warned the people of that era in very stern words. We read in Matthew 23 and verse 34, Matthew 23 and verse 34, speaking to them, uh, to their leaders especially, he said, Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen, gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you'll see, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In 70 AD, the Romans besieged the city of Jerusalem in response to a Jewish revolt. The city fell and the temple was razed to the ground. Most of the inhabitants were killed or carried into slavery. A little over 60 years later, another Jewish revolt in Palestine broke out called the Bar Kokhba Revolt after the name of its leader, Simon Bar Kokhba. The end result was the complete destruction of Jerusalem. The Temple Mount was plowed and lowered by a thousand feet and the Jewish population in Palestine was decimated. The dispersion of the Jewish people by the end of that revolt was for all practical purposes completed, and the Jews became a stateless people for 2,000 years, or nearly 2,000 years. The Bible had foretold the destruction of the temple 
Jesus himself had prophesied of it. We read in Mark 13 and verse 1, Mark 13 and verse 1, quote, Then as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here? And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. End quote. And this prophecy was literally fulfilled and no buildings of the temple of that period remain. They were completely demolished by the Romans. The Bible, however, foretells of a future siege against Judah and Jerusalem. Now, it's interesting to note that this, the fulfilling of this prophecy would have been impossible until very recently. Because as, as I mentioned, the Jews have been a stateless people or had been for nearly 2,000 years. They had been driven out of Palestine for the most part. Maybe a very few lived there during that period, but not many. And it certainly was not uh, predominantly Jewish, nor was it ruled by any Jewish rulers all during that period. But the Jews, beginning uh, around uh, maybe, say, 120 years ago or so, began filtering back to Palestine, migrating there. Their numbers gradually increased during the 20th century. And in 1948, a Jewish state was established in Palestine. The Jewish state is call, called Israel, but it's actually the Jewish state of Israel. And so we read of a future siege against Judah and Jerusalem. In prophecy, and also prophecy foretells that the Jewish people will be restored to a favorable relationship with God. We read in Zechariah 12, Zechariah 12 and verse 2 Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness. This is a prophecy for the future. I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples and all who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. In that day, says the Lord, I will strike every horse with confusion, its rider with madness. I will open my eyes on the house of Judah, and I will strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, The inhabitants of Jerusalem are my strength in the Lord of hosts, their God. In that day I will make the governors of Judah like a firepan in the wood pile and like a fiery torch in the sheaves. And they shall devour all the surrounding peoples on the right hand and on the left. 
but Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place. Jerusalem. The Lord will save the tents of Judah first so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall not become greater than that of Judah. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. <clears throat> Actually, this is speaking of Jesus Christ, who is, in a sense, the angel of the Lord, who will come at that time to defend Jerusalem and Judah. Then verse 9 says, It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem, and I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, when they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day there shall be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning at Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of Shimei by itself, and their wives by themselves, all the families that remain, every family by itself, and their wives by themselves. So at that time, Jesus Christ is going to come to defend Jerusalem and deliver the people of Judah. And they will finally recognize who the Messiah is and repent. So despite the failures of the past, hope remains for Jerusalem, for the Jewish people, and for all mankind. Jesus Christ will establish his throne in Jerusalem and from there will rule all nations as we read in Zechariah 8 verse 14. Zechariah 8 beginning with verse 14, for thus says the Lord of hosts, just as I determined to punish you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, says the Lord of hosts, and I would not relent. So again in those days, I am determined to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Do not fear goes on in verse 22 of Zechariah 8 to say, Yes, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from every language of the nations shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. <clears throat> 